Well, come on in, everybody. Find seats. I, uh, I am genuinely surprised that you are all here. I imagine, I imagine that is because you just can't read and don't, <laughs> and don't know who else is speaking at this hour or, or those seats were already filled. Um, but uh, so this is um, the Puritans on the sinfulness of sin, the greatness of God's grace, a, uh, a wonderful title that I was assigned. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Mike Riccardi. I serve as an assistant professor of theology at the Master's Seminary, uh, where, where I teach classes on the doctrines of man, sin, and salvation, as well as on apologetics and evangelism. And uh, related to that, I've also served as one of the staff pastors at Grace Community Church for the past 10 years. Uh, it really has been the, uh, the privilege of my life. And I am very grateful to be with you here at the Puritan Conference. I am also, as I said, a bit mystified. I, um, I love the Puritans. My heart has been affected in the best sense of that term by their writings. Uh, they have taught me to worship in many ways. They have taught me to preach. Um, they have certainly uh, taught me to hate sin and to love Christ. And yet, uh, I would not classify myself as an expert on Puritan history or theology. Uh, I'm with you today more as a fellow fanboy of the Puritans <laughs> than as a scholar or an academic authority. And so I've got a, a very keen sense of uh, one of these things is not like the others. Um, but I'm humbled by the invitation and pray that uh, the Lord will display treasure in earthen vessels. Well, again, the topic is the Puritans on the sinfulness of sin and the greatness of God's grace, which is sort of like saying it's a seminar on the Puritans. <laughs> it seems like everything that they wrote it was expounding the sinfulness of sin and the greatness of God's grace, uh, which means there is a ton to cover, and it's, it's required me to be quite selective in the way that I've approached this study. Uh, there, there is a litany of Puritan works on the doctrine of sin, especially from a theological and practical point of view. Uh, you can check uh, Beaky and Jones's Puritan Theology, page 203 and footnote 3, for an excellent bibliography, or starter's bibliography, much of which I've represented on the slide here. Um, you, you can't miss the three classic works on sin and temptation in the sixth volume of John Owen's works. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, The Unregenerate Man's Guiltiness Before God, in volume 10 of his works. Anthony Burgess wrote a treatise on the doctrine of original sin. Several Puritans, several Puritans wrote uh, a books that went under the title of this seminar, The Sinfulness of Sin. I lost my screen there. I don't know. There it goes. Um, and those include Samuel Bolton, Jeremiah Burroughs, Edward Reynolds, and Ralph Venning. All of them wrote, a, wrote books which have some variation of the title, The Sinfulness of Sin. And so those resources will be a blessing to you if you are looking for a classic, systematic treatment of homardiology, the nature of sin, original sin, the imputation and transmission of sin, total depravity, and so on. Same is true with regard to treatments on the doctrine of God's grace in salvation. I mean, we could just, I mean, I could spend the entire seminar giving you a bibliography, but of note, again, Beaky and Jones, Puritan Theology, um, Goodwins of Christ, the Mediator, uh, Owen, the Person of Christ, the Death of Death and the Death of Christ, um, Perkins on Predestination, John Flavel's Fountain of Life. Um, so, we could just, like I say, I just list titles for you, and that could last an hour. But my approach in this seminar is going to be to really press into the title, The Sinfulness of Sin, 
and the greatness of grace. I want to use this time to expose you to the ways that the Puritans stirred up the people of God's hatred for sin and the people of God's love and admiration for God and his grace for the supreme treasure that he is. And, and really, the two are related, aren't they? Uh, they are like the, the gleaming stars in the night sky, right? The greatness of God's grace is really only truly apprehended in its glory when it's viewed against the dark backdrop of the wickedness of our sin. And so before I say any more, I want to read Romans five twenty to 21 to sort of frame our time. Paul writes, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so my method will be to highlight key themes of Puritan preaching and writing on both the sinfulness of sin and the greatness of God's grace. And I'm simply going to provide a deluge of primary source quotations from the Puritans themselves. This is sort of like hey, I've read this. It's awesome. I want to show you. It's, it's very little of Mike's commentary, and I think that I'm not going to say anything as well as, as they've said it. And so uh, you, you won't be able to take pictures of every... Well, you might be able to take pictures of every slide <laughs> as long as you have a, a 256-gigabyte uh, hard drive on your phone. But I'll do my best to make sure that these slides are available somehow in a PDF or whatever else. Um, but do what you got to do. But you won't be able to write everything on the slides. It's, it's really so that you'd be able to listen well and really kind of soak it in. And it's going to feel like a fire hose. You're going to feel like you got beat up at the end of it. I know because that's how I felt when I was, you know, researching it and putting it all together. Um, but I hope God uses it anyway. Um, so, and the, the prayer is that you'll be stirred to hate sin and love Christ more than when you walked in. So eight themes on the Puritans on the sinfulness of sin, and then we got more on the greatness of grace. So we're going to rapid fire, okay? The first of those is the usefulness of studying sin. Now, Ralph Venning, in his books, The Sinfulness of Sin, originally published in 1669 under the title Sin, the Plague of Plagues, just four years after the Great Plague of London, Uh, his book's going to be something of a primary text for us today. Uh, Venning writes, it cannot be, it cannot but be extremely useful to let men see what sin is, how prodigiously vile, how deadly mischievous, and therefore how monstrously ugly and odious a thing sin is. Thus a way may be made for admiring the free and rich grace of God, for believing in our Lord Jesus Christ for vindicating the holy, just, and good law of God and his condemnation of sinners for breaking it, for hating sin and repenting for and from it, thereby taking a holy, just, and good revenge on it and ourselves, that we may love and serve God at a better rate than we ever did in the little and short time of innocence itself. And lastly, that this black spot may serve to set off the admirable, incomparable, and transcendent beauty of holiness. And so the study of sin, though difficult, unpleasant, unsavory at times, is nevertheless useful in the Christian life, if for no other than those six reasons. 
A second theme we find is the supreme wickedness of sin. Venning's entire treatise is founded upon Romans 7.13, where Paul says, uh, I'm not there yet, but Paul says, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. And Venning makes the observation that such a comment denotes the malignant, pestilent, and pernicious nature and operation of sin, that its own name is the worst that can be given to it. It's not that sin becomes utterly repugnant or utterly loathsome or utterly malicious. When Paul looks to paint sin in the worst colors he can find, he uses its own name to demean it. And so that sin would become utterly sinful. He goes on to illustrate this by comparing sin to God. He says, as God is holy, all holy, all to, only, only holy, altogether holy, and always holy, so sin is sinful, all sinful, only sinful, altogether sinful, and always sinful. As in God, there is no evil, so in sin, there is no good. And on the next page, he says, sin is the master of misrule, the author of sedition, the builder of Babel, the troubler of Israel, and all mankind. And so again, as I pelt you with these things, you need to direct your, your own ire of, at sin inward, and you need to reason with yourself. This is what lives in me. This is what tempts me. This is what I am tempted to give myself to every day. How am I to fight it? Well, per, first of all, I'm to stir my affections against it by loading the mind and the conscience with truth like this. So Swinnick, George Swinnick writes that all misery calls sin mother. And Thomas Watson said, sin has the devil for its father, shame for its companion, and death for its wages. And in one of the most striking characterizations I've ever read, uh, John Bunyan writes this, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. And Venning comments on that passage in Bunyan, and he says, uh, we may go on and say it is the upbraiding of his providence, the scoff of his promise, and the reproach of his wisdom. And there's just so much that you want to pause and, and comment on and reflect on, and that's going to be the downside to this, is that I'm just going to be moving along. There's almost, it's almost like, you know, do we have enough time to benefit from this? But again, pray and believe in the Holy Spirit. So third, the Puritans confront us with the loathsomeness of sin. There's an extended section of Venning that provides a helpful meditation here. He says, sin is a loathsome thing. This is clear when we begin to sit, consider what sin resembles, uh, a canker or gangrene. He says, men are loath to eat and drink with those who have those diseases. Sin is likened to the rot, the filth, and the corruption of the foulest disease, which is so foul and rotten that one would not touch it with a pair of tongs, as the proverb goes. The apostle tells us that some, like Janus and, and Jambres, resist the truth. He calls them men of corrupt or rotten minds. 
And Solomon would have us know that just as a sound heart is the life of the flesh, so envy, anything opposed to the sound heart, is the rottenness of the bones. Indeed, sin is likened to the plague from which everyone flies, runs away from. It is so offensive and loathsome that it separates the nearest relations. Now, sin is called the plague of the heart, which is much worse than any sore of the body. And this is not all. Sin is not only likened to the most loathsome diseases, but also to the other most loathsome things there are. It's likened to the blood in which infants are born, which is loathsome. It is likened to mire and dung, to the very excrements of the, that lie in ditches and sewers in which sows and swine wallow, and even to the vomit of dogs. It's compared to the putrefaction of graves and sepulchers, which stink, as Martha said of Lazarus when he had been some days dead. It's also likened to poison. All these things and others, which I shall not name, are loathsome things at which men stop their noses and from which they hide their eyes. He goes on. Now all the former examples reach only to the body and do not defile the man, but sin reaches to and seizes on soul and spirit and defiles the man. This is the canker, the rottenness, the plague, the poison of the soul. And sin is not only worse than any, but all of these truly filthy beyond expression or imagination. And, and again, I think that you just, you ask yourself, is that really my orientation to sin? Is that my estimation of sin? Do I, do I recoil from it as the loathsome disease that it is? I mean, not all of us did this, but, you know, for almost two years, people wore multiple masks on, the, on their faces and you know, gloves and face shields and didn't travel and didn't see family and didn't all just to make sure that they stayed away from a disease that at least had the potential to harm them. Uh, do we keep away from sin with at least as much vigilance as we aim to keep away from COVID? Well, Benning goes to explain, he says, look, if you hate your brother and are a murderer, John, 1 John 3.15, well, sin, which hates God, would be a murderer of God if it could. If sin's power were as great as its will is wicked, it would suffer God not to be. Sin, Venning says, goes about to un-God God and is by some of the ancients called deicidium, God murder, or God killing, deicide, right? This is what sin's goal is. Sin is the insurrection and the rebellion of the heart against God. It turns from him and turns against him. It runs over to the camp of the enemy and there takes, arm, takes up arms against God. Sin is a running from God and a fighting against God. It would spoil the Lord of all the jewels of his crown. It opposes the sovereignty of God. A sinful heart would set itself up in God's throne. It would be king in his stead and have the command of all. Sinners would be their own gods, says Joseph Allen. Or is it Richard Allen? One, there's a Richard Allen also. Heaven open, but one way, one way or the other. Somebody Allen. Um, <laughs> my notes say one thing, my slide says another. Here's venting on on how the, the contrariness of sin to the glory of God, which is our great joy and life, ought to make us hate it. He says, poor soul, can you find it in your heart to hug and embrace such a monster as this? Will you love that which hates God 
and which God hates? God forbid. Will you join yourself to that which is nothing but contrariety to God and to all that is good? Oh, say to this idol, this devil, get hence. What have I to do with you, you sorcerer, you full of all malignity and mischief, you child, yea, father of the devil, you who are the founder of hell, an enemy to all righteousness, who ceases not to pervert the right ways of the Lord and to reproach the living God away, away. Shall I be seduced by you to grieve the God of all my joy, to displease the God of all my comfort? to vex the God of all my contentment, to do evil against a good God by whom I live, move, and have my being. Oh, no. And one of the great things about the Puritans is this very kind of thing. They just give voice to what the, the heart and the conscience, to what the, the act, actings of the mind ought to be upon sin in the moment of temptation. You know, sh- shall I be seduced by you to grieve the God of all my joy? Well, not if I like joy. Right? See the way that it's re- he's reasoning with himself? If God is my joy and all my comfort and, and, and all my contentment, why would I work against all of that? Why would I work against my joy and my contentment and my comfort? You see, he's fighting, he's fighting sin, the Puritan mind is, by presenting the glory of God as the satisfying alternative to sin. The, the, the fight against temptation isn't, Stop desiring pleasure. It's desire a superior pleasure. Uh, Desire God and all of the blessings that he has. John Piper has some stuff to say about that. He'll, He'll probably say that sometime this week. Then sin is not only contrary to the glory of God, it's also contrary to the good of man. But I repeat myself, right? Because what is the good of man but the glory of God? And so Venning asks, will you be a self soul murderer? Are you going to run into your own ruin and damnation? Why would you do that? Inevitably, Benning says, that must be evil to man, which is evil against God, who is the chiefest good of man. Communion with and conformity to God is man's felicity, his heaven upon earth and in, and in heaven too, without which it would not be worth his while to have a being. It's not worth living if you don't have God. Well, now, since sin is a separation between God and man, an interruption of this communion and conformity, it must needs be prejudicial and hurtful to him. He says again, seeing, that, seeing then that man's happiness lies so much in seeing God, what a great mischief has sin done to man in separating him from the sight of God. Man cannot see God and live, whereas the best life is in seeing God. Edward Rayner, uh, I have Edwards there. That's just my love for Jonathan Edwards poking through. <laughs> Edward Edward Rayner, Precepts for Christian Practice, says, sin sets up a partition wall or separates between Christ and the soul and keeps them at a distance that the soul cannot come nigh, to, nigh him to take him. Sin darkens and blinds the eye that should behold Christ withers the hand that should receive Christ and shuts the heart that should entertain him. While you will keep sin, you neither will nor can take Christ nor open your hearts to let the king of glory come in. Watson said, sin clips the wings of prayer so that it will not fly 
to the throne of grace. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have separated you from your God so that he does not hear you. 1 Peter 3, 7, dwell with understanding so that your prayers won't be hindered, right? Sin clips the wings of prayer. And Venning says again, he says, if men considered what they are doing when they sin, they would abhor it. For who would rush to his own ruin? Who would drink poison? None but fools or madmen. Did men consider that the wages of sin is death, that wrath and hell attend sin, they surely would be more wary. So don't, not only do you act against the glory of God, which you should love more and cherish more than anything, but in sinning, you act against your own good. You act against your own benefit. You sin unto your own detriment. You, no man in history has ever benefited from a single act of sin, not once. It's been nothing but good, and yet here we rush headlong into it as if it's going to satisfy us, as if it's going to um, bring to us um, what we desire. And it's, just, it's exactly the opposite. It's, it's like a, a man who is dying of thirst and runs to the ocean for refreshment and finds salt water to only complicate his thirst. Consider the deceitfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin consists in its deceitfulness. And nobody has, I think, explained this more memorably than Thomas Brooks in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He said the very first device of Satan that he outlines is that Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. He says he presents the golden cup and hides the poison. He presents the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. He says, Satan with ease puts fallacies upon us by his golden baits, and then he leads us and leaves us in a fool's paradise. He promises the soul honor, pleasure, profit, but he pays the soul with the greatest contempt, shame, and loss that can be. And it's important for us to remember this deception. Venning says the precious substance promised by sin ends in a pernicious shadow. And the spoils we get by sin only spoil us. Sin promises like a god, but pays like a devil. Sin's performance is altogether contrary to its promises. It promises gold and pays dross. I mean, I mean you could just you can spend a day with that, right? Remedy three to device number two in Precious Remedies, and this is just, this is just one of the best paragraphs you'll ever read. Look, how do, you, how do you remedy against Satan's devices? Look on sin with that eye, with which within a few hours we shall see it. Brooks, and I love ah souls from Brooks, or oh souls. You, you know something's good coming, something good's coming when it's oh souls. Ah souls, when you shall lie upon a dying bed and stand before a judgment seat, Sin shall be unmasked, and its dress and robes shall then be taken off, and then it shall appear more vile, filthy, and terrible than hell itself. Then that which formerly appeared most sweet will appear most bitter, and that which appeared most beautiful will appear most ugly, and that which appeared most delightful will appear most dreadful to the soul. 
Oh, souls, the day is at hand when the devil will pull off the paint and garnish that he hath put upon sin and present that monster sin in such monstrous shape to your souls that will cause your thoughts to be troubled, your countenance to be changed, the joints of your loins to be loosed, and your knees to be dashed one against another, your hearts to be so terrified that you will be ready with Ahithophel and Judas to strangle and hang your bodies on earth and your souls in hell if the Lord has not more mercy on you than he had upon them. Oh, therefore, look upon sin now as you must look upon it to all eternity and as God, conscience, and Satan will present it to you another day. That is just one of the more sobering paragraphs you'll ever read. I remember, I remember turning to that paragraph after a, a dear friend of mine, a missionary sent out from Grace Church, had, had fallen morally, had committed adultery. And I just remember that, that, that had he been thinking, let me look upon this sin uh, you know, in just a moment, you know, in, in just, uh, as I'll have to look on it when I'm confessing and stepping down from ministry and seeing the shame of my brother's which is to say nothing of hell, right? Uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have engaged in that task. If we, could, if we could look upon the sin we're about to commit with the eyes that we will look upon it later when it undoes us, whether in this life only, if God is gracious, or in the next life, if God is just apart from mercy, uh, we would stay away if all it was was our natural willpower, right? To say nothing of God's grace. But with God's grace, that should be a consideration that keeps us from sin. It's deceitful. It, 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 pay, it promises like a God, but pays like a devil. And then consider the wretched end of sin. So the sinfulness of sin is discovered in the wretched end of it, which, of course, is the utter ruin of the soul in the eternal torments of hell. Venning says, It is the design and work of sin to make man eternally miserable and to undo him soul and body forever. And then Venning comments on Matthew twenty-five forty-one, where Jesus says to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And he takes each word of that phrase and he comments on it. He says, it is as if sinners should say to God in the day of judgment, Lord, have mercy on us. And he says, have mercy upon you, says God. No, I will have no mercy on you. There was a time when you might have had mercy without judgment, but now you will have judgment without mercy. Depart, depart. And if they should then beg and say, Lord, if we must depart, let it be from thy throne of judgment, but not from thee. No, says the Lord, depart from me. Depart from my presence in which is joy. Depart and go to hell. Lord, they say, seeing we must be gone, bless us before we go so that thy blessing may be upon us. Oh no, says God, you go with a curse. Depart ye cursed. Oh Lord, if we must go from thee, let us not go into the place of torment, but appoint some place, if not of pleasure, then of ease. No, depart into fire, burning and tormenting flames. Oh Lord, if into fire, let it only be for a little while. Let the fire soon be out, or us soon out of it, for who can dwell in everlasting burnings? No, neither you nor the fire shall know an end. Be gone into everlasting fire. Lord, then let it be long before we go there. No, depart immediately. 
the sentence shall be put immediately in execution. Ah, Lord, let us at least have good company who will pity us, though they cannot help us. No, you shall have none but tormenting devils. Those whom you obeyed when they were, when they were tempters, you shall be with as tormentors. And Venning exclaims, what misery sin has brought on man to bring him to hear this dreadful doom. And it's hard to, it's hard to get through that. It's hard to think that, that hell is real and that there are those experiencing that very, right now and that those who dally with sin trifle with that. They dance on the brink of destruction. And so Venning says, that can be no little matter for which God brings on men such grave damnation. And then, if that wasn't enough, the supreme wickedness, the loathsomeness, the the contrariness to the glory of God and the good of man, the deceitfulness, the wretched end of it, consider the greatest tragedy of sin of all, and that is the undoing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we delight in that which brought our greatest friend to his greatest misery? And this is where it'll probably be rough for me. So uh, if I start sniffling, it's all right. Oh, the depth of the evil of sin, Flavel says. If ever you wish to see how great and horrid and evil sin is, measure it in your thoughts, either by the infinite holiness and excellency of God, who is wrong by it, or by the infinite sufferings of Christ, who died to satisfy for it. Then you will have deeper apprehensions of sin, of the evil of sin. And he, he goes on a different page. Oh, methinks as thou art reading upon the, or reading, the, reading the deep humiliation and unspeakable sorrows Christ underwent for the expiating of sin, thou shouldst thenceforth look upon sin as a tender child would look upon that knife that stabbed his father to the heart. Thou shouldst never wet and sharpen it again to wound the Son of God afresh. Venning uh, says, The greatness of Christ's sufferings is a full witness against the sinfulness of sin. What an odious thing sin must be to God. He will, and he, look, listen to the way that he compounds this. He will pardon none without blood. God would accept no blood but the blood of his son, not that of bulls and goats, but that of his son. What a hell of wickedness that must be, which none but God can expiate and purge. God does not do it except by taking human nature. The God-man could not do it without suffering. And no suffering will serve but death, and no death but an accursed one. What an evil, odious evil is sin that must have the blood, or must have blood, the blood of God to take it away. Oh, and this is rough. Flavel says, I remember how I've read of a harlot, a prostitute that killed her child. And of course, when abortion was not nearly as safe or accessible, uh, that would be a regular occurrence. It's, uh, it takes the paint off of it, takes the sort of the disguise off of the evil of it when you've actually got to kill your own child who you're holding. But such was a, a common occurrence. And so he says, I remember of that story, of, some, of such an occasion. And, it's, and it was said that the baby smiled upon its mother when she went to stab it. Why would the baby do otherwise, right? It recognizes her mother and expects to receive good from her hand, doesn't know what's about to happen. And then Flavel says, sinner. Does not Christ smile upon thee in the gospel? 
And will you, as it were, stab him to the heart by your infidelity? I did myself no favors backing these up one against another. All right, so that the God... That the God of strength should be weary, the judge of all flesh condemned, the God of life put to death, that he that is one with his father should cry out of misery, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That he that had the keys of hell and death at his girdle should lie imprisoned in the sepulcher of another, having in his lifetime nowhere to lay his head, nor after death to lay his body, that that head before which the angels do cast down their, th- their crowns, should be crowned with thorns. And those eyes, purer than the sun, put out by the darkness of death. Those ears, which hear nothing but hallelujahs of saints and angels, to hear the blasphemies of the multitude. That face, which was fairer than the sons of men, to be spit on by those beastly wretched Jews. That mouth and tongue that spake as never a man spake, accused for blasphemy, those hands that freely swayed the scepter of heaven nailed to the cross, those feet fine un- uh, like unto fine brass nailed to the cross for man's sins, each sense annoyed his feeling or touching with a spear and nails. I don't think I hit it. There we go. Uh, spear and nails, his, his smell with stinking flavor being crucified about Golgotha, the place of skulls, his taste with vinegar and gall, his hearing with reproaches and sight of his mother and his disciples bemoaning him, his soul comfortless and forsaken, and all this for those very sins that Satan paints and puts fine colors upon. Oh, how should the consideration of this stir up the soul against it? And work the soul to fly from it and to use all holy means whereby sin may be subdued and destroyed. And so here it is. Here sin presents itself for temptation. You've learned, if you've walked with Christ at any length of time, to discern the presentation of temptation to the flesh wherein you might consent or reject. And in that moment, you, you always know it, and you can decide, never mind, and you, move, and you press further. Or you feel it, and you say no, and you immediately rise against it. That's what you rise against it with. You start thinking about the fact that the one who created all life was put to death, that the one whose brow should have worn a, a, a heavenly crown was crowned with thorns. You think about somebody who was the, literally the, incarnate, the incarnation of faithfulness, betrayed. The one who is the truth, accused of bearing false witness. You say, this is what it took for me, my sins to be forgiven. This is what it put Christ through. And then he hear, well, I sit around and dally with the knife that stabbed my father in the heart, my dad, right? That's what, what either Flavel or Venning says before. Well I, well, I look upon this one who smiles upon me in the gospel and stab him to the heart with the very thing that was his undoing. Imagine the bewilderment in the son of God's consciousness. Why, why have you forsaken me? And, and 
It's of, it's of great use if we'd only put it to use. So such is the sinfulness of sin. It tries to ungod God. It unmans man. It casts him into eternal damnation. It's what put the Lord Jesus to death. It's always resisting the Holy Spirit. And so Venning says, Shall I now entreat you to consider what has been said and to think what an abominable and ugly thing sin is? It is the worst of evils, worse than the, worse than the worst of words can express. I dare say, if we've all felt about sin, what we feel about it in this moment, we'd never sin again as far as it lies upon us. That's the task of keeping the heart. That's the task of following. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That it means to set upon sin like the, the most wicked, evil thing in the world that it is. And to use these truths to press the conscience so that you look at it and there is no pull and there is no draw. Some temptation. Hey, look, come do this. Come do this evil thing. What? Why would I get, get away from me? What's the matter with you? Out of here. That's, that's what it means to be godly, to be Christ-like. Christ doesn't sit there and go, oh, I really love to sin, but no, 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 it's the wrong thing to do. He says, this ruler of this world has nothing in me. There's nothing in me that would go after filth. I prefer beauty. And that's where we go next, to the greatness of God's grace. Uh, So Venning says, well, what a welcome then should Christ and his gospel have. They come with saving health to cure us of the worst of diseases and plagues, that of sin. Surely we should press with violence and be so violent as to besiege heaven and take it by force. Swinnick says, man was a child of wrath, had plunged himself into an ocean of evils and fury, and this required an ocean of love and pity. But the creator had infinite grace for infinite guilt and infinite mercy for infinite misery. And this will this will get you just as much. So here 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 are the first of the first seven. That's not all of them. Just the first seven uh, considerations of, of the greatness of God's grace. One, consider the willing graciousness of God. Bunyan, in Grace Abounding, says, "Sinner, this is speaking as if he's God, right? Sinner, thou thinkest that because of thy sins and infirmities, I cannot save thy soul." But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, and not on thee, and I will deal with you according as I am pleased with him. That is every bit of hope that we have. There's a, a man named John Hurrian that I'm sure not many of you uh, have heard of. He, the Banner of Truth published a a little book he did on particular redemption is very good. It's a small paperback, not, not much larger than the size of my hand. And uh, I don't know if it's there in the bookstore today, but it's worth getting anyway. And in there, he has this line, does our heinous guilt cry strongly against us for condemnation? Well, the Christian should comfort himself in this, that the word of Christ cries louder in the ears of God for pardon and forgiveness. It's as if your sin says, Away with him, crucify him, condemnation, guilty. And Christ raises his voice all louder, pardoned, forgiven, righteous. 
Venning says, and what goodness is it that he puts us to no greater penance than repentance? God might have said, you must lie in hell so many thousand years to feel the smart of your sin. And if he had bid you do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more when he says, wash and be clean. All you've got to do is come. That's more for tomorrow's seminar, Puritan Evangelism. In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan, so there's the scene where Christian has turned out of his way. He's listened to worldly wise men, and now he's, he's, uh, he's been convicted by evangelist because evangelist says, what do you do turning out of your way? And he's on his way now to the, to the wicket gate, and, and uh, he, he, he says to evangelist, really, he's wounded in, in, in conscience, and he says, sir, what think you? Is there hope? May my sin be forgiven? Ruth's going to take a picture of me while I'm crying. <laughs> uh, thy sin, he said, the evangelist says, thy sin is very great. Yet will the man at the gate receive thee, for he has goodwill for men. And then when he goes to goodwill, he, he says, you know, here's a, a poor, wretched sinner. Are you willing to have me? And goodwill says, with all my heart. I dare say, friends, that we we don't get to these thoughts on our own. I mean, as godly as I'm sure all of you are, I think we need help. And I don't know what it is, if it's just that it's the the distractions of the day or, or, or what, but God just highly favored those men and and made them, I mean, I guess he stuck Bunyan in a jail for 12 years where he couldn't do anything else but think on these things. And you know, sadly enough for us, we don't get thrown into jail enough. <laughs> but, but those are the melting considerations that the Puritans lead us to, that I don't think that we do on our own. That's why we have a conference like this. All right. Second, <laughs> consider the bounty of God's grace. And by this, Uh, I'm speaking of the blessed incongruity of what we deserve versus what we get. (laughs) Flavel makes an observation on Revelation 3.21, which says that we're going to sit down with Christ on his throne and his kingdom. And he exclaims, oh, amazing love. What? We sit on thrones while as good as we by nature howl in flames. Oh, what manner of love is this? Owen provides a great, succinct picture of the incongruity between what we deserve versus what we get by picturing Christ as our great Noah's Ark that saves us from the floods of God's judgment. He says simply, the storm has been his and the safety shall be ours. And then Flavel comments on, uh, movingly on the benefit of remembering what we were saved from. Reader, let me beg thee, if thou be one of this pardon number, to look over the canceled bonds and see what vast sums are remitted to thee. Remember what you were in your natural estate. What? And yet pardoned, full and finally pardoned, and that freely as to any hand that you had in the procurement of it. What can you do but fall down at the feet of free grace and kiss those feet that moved so freely towards so vile a sinner? 
Third is the father's free love or the freeness of the father's love. Owen has a great section, communion with God. He says, the love of the father is the love of him who is in himself all sufficient, infinitely satiated with himself and his own glorious excellencies and perfections, who has no need to go forth with his love unto others, nor to seek an object of it outside himself. There might he rest with delight and complacency to eternity. He is sufficient unto his own love. He had his son also, his eternal wisdom to rejoice and delight himself in from all eternity. This might take up and satiate the whole delight of the father, but he will love his saints also. You see what he's saying? God was perfectly blessed in himself with his love and with his son and with the spirit. And he could have just kept to himself and been perfectly happy, literally perfectly happy. And yet he goes out from himself and blesses us and loves us as well. Fourth, consider the father's willingness to deliver Christ to death. Um, Flavel says, what an astonishing act of love was this then for the father to give the delight, the darling of his soul out of his very bosom for poor sinners. All tongues must needs pause and falter that attempt the expressions of his grace. Expressions being here swallowed up. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Which of us would deliver a child, the child of our delights, an only child to death for the greatest inheritance of the world. Yet surely never did any child lie so close to a parent's heart as Christ did to his father's. And yet he willingly parts with him, though his only one, the son of his delights, and that to death, a cursed death for sinners, for the worst of sinners. Oh, the admirable love of God to men, matchless love, a love past finding out. Charnock, I mean, this is just unreal. It's almost like you're not, you shouldn't even write this, right? Like this is almost, it's almost like, no, don't even, this is not even okay. The father was desirous to hear the son groaning and see him bleeding that we might not groan under his frowns and bleed under his wrath. He spared not him that he might spare us. Refused not to strike him that he might be well pleased with us. Drenched his sword in the blood of his son that it might not forever be wet with ours. But that his goodness might forever triumph in our salvation. He was willing to have his son made man and die rather than man should perish who had delighted to ruin himself. So you know, what, you know what that is? That's the glory of penal substitutionary atonement. Without the big words, right? Without the, the sort of $64,000 label, that's why when people attack penal substitution, all the theology nerds get our, our dander up, right? It's not because, oh, you've, you've not said the shibboleth the way that you're supposed to say it. You know, you've not crossed your doctrinal T's and dotted your doctrinal I's. It's because if we don't have penal substitution, we don't have that. We don't have the doxology unless we have the theology. Flavel goes on. The Lord, when the time was come that Christ must suffer, did as it were. And this is another one of those things you just go, is that right? Like, 
did, as it were, say, Oh, all ye warring waves of my incensed justice, now swell as high as heaven and go over his soul and body. Sink him to the bottom. Let him go like Jonah, his type, into the belly of hell, unto the roots of the mountains. Come, all ye raging storms that I have reserved for this day of wrath, beat upon him, that he may not be able to look up. Psalm 40, verse 12. Go, justice, put him upon the rack. Torment him in every part till all his bones be out of joint and his heart within him be melted as wax in the midst of his bowels, Psalm twenty-two fourteen. And ye assembly of the wicked Jews and Gentiles that have so long gaped for his blood, now he is delivered into your hands. You are permitted to execute your malice to the full. I now loose your chain and into your hand and power he is delivered. And you say, no wonder sweat as drops of blood. No wonder, Father, if this cup may pass, you know, and, and yet he set his face like flint. And yet save me from this hour. No, for this very purpose, I've come to this hour. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Do what you do quickly. The hour and power of darkness are yours. The grace of Christ It's in the Father's willingness. The Father's willingness and, and the Son's willingness as well. And then Flavel comes back again. Our dearest children are but as strangers to us in comparison of the unspeakable dearness that was between the Father and Christ. It melts our bowels. It breaks our heart to behold our children striving in the pangs of death. But the Lord beheld his son struggling under the agonies, under agonies that never any felt before him that he should be content to part with a son and such an only one is such a manifestation of love as will be admired to all eternity. You have never any need to doubt the father's love for you if you're in Christ because there's no greater display of love than that. Then there's the son's self-humbling, which is more properly that notion of the grace of Christ. Charnock says, the son eclipsed his choicest glory. For this, God must be made man. Eternity must suffer death. The Lord of angels must weep in a cradle. And the creator of the world must hang like a slave. He must be in a manger in Bethlehem and die upon a cross on Calvary. Unspotted righteousness must be made sin, and unblemished blessedness be made a curse. I mean, just hear those juxtapositions. There's really, honestly, nothing that's been more fruitful in my own devotional re reflections than to meditate on the heights from which Christ came to the depths to which he, he went. I mean, if you see those eternity suffer death, unblemished blessedness made a curse, right? The opposite of curse is blessing. The opposite of righteousness is sin. He was at no other expense than the breath of his mouth to form man. The fruits of the earth could have maintained an innocent man without any other cost. But his broken nature cannot be healed without the invaluable medicine of the blood of God. 
view Christ in the womb and in the manger, in his weary steps and hungry bowels, in his prostrations in the garden, and in his clotted drops of bloody sweat, view his head pierced with the crown of thorns and his face besmeared with the soldier's slabber, view him in his march to Calvary and his elevation on the painful cross with his head hanged down and his side streaming blood, view him pelted with the scoffs of the governors and the derisions of the rabble and see in all this what cost goodness was at for man's redemption. And then Flavel says, Ah, Christian, can you look upon Jesus as standing in your room, in, in your place, to bear the wrath of a deity for thee? Can you think on it and not melt? That when you, like Isaac, was bound, when you were bound to the altar to be offered up to justice, Christ, like the ram, was caught in the thicket and offered in your place. When your sins had raised a fearful tempest that had threatened every moment to entomb you in a sea of wrath, Jesus Christ was thrown over to appease that storm. Say, reader, can your heart dwell one hour upon such a subject as this? Can you with faith present Christ to yourself as he was taken down from the cross, drenched in his own blood, and say, these were the wounds that he received for me. This is he that loved me and gave himself for me. Out of these wounds comes that balm that heals my soul. Out of these stripes, my peace. When he hanged upon the cross, he bore my name upon his breast like the high priest. And then Flavel says, it was love, pure love, strong love to my poor soul, to the soul of an enemy that drew him down from heaven and all the glory he had there to endure these sorrows in soul and body for me. Oh, you cannot hold up your hearts long to the piercing thoughts of this, but your bowels will be pained, and like Joseph, you'll seek a place to vent your hearts in. And naturally, from there, grace proceeds from seeing Christ in just that way. Owen says, The great and principal fountain from whence the drawing efficacy and power of grace does proceed is from the lifting up of Christ. Drawing grace is manifested in and drawing love proceeds from the sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross. Newton, and this is a great quote, wonderful are the effects when a crucified glorious savior is presented to the eye of faith. This sight destroys the love of sin. See why? Beholding as in a mirror, right? We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, just as from the Lord the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18. What kills sin is the spiritual sight of Christ. So behold him. Stop beholding vanity. Stop beholding things which can't satisfy and which can't profit. Don't binge watch whatever's on Netflix. Go binge watch John Newton. Binge read John Flavel. You fill your mind with those things, and the love of sin is destroyed. Communion with the beautiful Christ. I couldn't decide on a title for this, so I was thinking communion with Christ and the beauty of Christ, and I just tried to put them together. And here's where Rutherford knocks us all on our backs. 
There are infinite plies in his love that the saint will never be able to unfold. I urge you upon a nearer and growing communion with Christ. There are curtains to be drawn back in Christ that we have never seen. There are new foldings of love in him. Dig deep, sweat, labor, and take pains for him. But the book is too long. <laughs> the language is too hard. And set, and, and set by as much time in the day for him as you can. He will be one with labor. Live on Christ's love. And uh, Owen says, all goes for Christ. All righteousness without him, all ways of religion, all goes for that one pearl. The glory of his deity, the excellence of his person, his all-conquering desirableness, ineffable love, wonderful undertaking, unspeakable condescensions, effectual mediation, complete righteousness, all lie in the, in the believer's eyes, ravish their hearts, and fill their affections and possess their souls. You see, you, you see that? That's a, that's a Christology. The glory of his deity, excellence of his person, all-conquering desirableness, ineffable love, wonderful undertaking. What's that? You mean the, the mission that he had, unspeakable condescensions, that's the incarnation, effectual mediation, that's the cross, complete righteousness, that's active obedience, all lie in the believer's eyes. Do they? Do they lie in your eyes? If they don't, they'll never ravish your hearts. And here's where Rutherford ramps it up. If there were 10,000, thousand millions of worlds, and as many heavens full of men and angels, Christ would not be pinched to supply all our wants and fill us all. Christ is a well of life, and who knows how deep it is to the bottom. This soul of ours has love and cannot but love some fair one, and oh, what a fair one. What an only one. What an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Jesus. Put the beauty of 10,000, thousand worlds of paradises like the Garden of Eden in one. Put all trees, flowers, smells, colors, tastes, joys, all sweetnesses, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. All but Christ is heaven's wonder and earth's wonder. How come, how come I can't say things like that? How come that doesn't come out of my heart? I'm reading the same Bible, right? It's, it's cause for self-examination. Why is it? I mean, sure, God is sovereign in the dispensation of his grace, but... God, give grace and give me self-discipline to, to do the digging that, that Rutherford did. Flavel says, when the saints shall have fed their eyes upon him in heaven, thousands and millions of years, he shall be as fresh, beautiful, and orient as at the beginning. Other beauties have their prime and their fading time. Don't all of us with mirrors know that. <laughs> but Christ abides eternally. Our delight in creatures is often most at first acquaintance. When we come nearer to them and see more of them, the edge of our delight is abated. In other words, you don't look so good close up. <laughs> but the longer you know Christ and the nearer you come to him, still the more do you see of his glory. Every farther prospect of Christ entertains the mind with fresh delights. He is, as it were, a new Christ every day, and yet the same Christ still. 
And there's somebody in that, that Flavel quotes in The Fountain of Life. He calls, uh, he doesn't even call him anything, just says, someone once said. And this is just something else. You almost wonder, yeah, it's, Oh, what I would give to have a bed made to my wearied soul in Christ's bosom. I cannot tell you what sweet pain and delightful torments are in his love. I often challenge time for holding us asunder. I profess to you I have no rest till I be over head and ears in love's ocean. If Christ's love, that fountain of delights, were laid open to me as I would wish, oh, how overcome would this my soul be? I half call his absence cruel. And the mask and veil on his face, a cruel covering that hides such a fair, fair face from a sick soul. I dare not challenge him, but his absence is a mountain of iron upon my heavy heart. Oh, when shall we meet? How long is the dawning of the marriage day? Oh, sweet Lord Jesus, take wide steps. You see what he's saying? Hurry up. Oh, my Lord, come over mountains at one stride. Oh, my beloved, flee like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of separation. Oh, if he would fold the heavens together like an old cloak and shovel time and days out of the way and make ready in haste the lamb's wife for her husband. Since he looked upon me, my heart is not my own. Grace is great. There's still more. Grace is great for the intercession of Christ, like what Gurnall says here. Suppose a king's son should get out of a besieged city where he had left his wife and children, whom he loves as his own soul, and these all ready to die by sword or famine if supply came not to the sooner, not the sooner. In other words, his family is going to die unless he helps them. Could this prince, when he arrived at his father's house, please himself with the delights of the court and forget the distress of his family? Or rather, would he not come post to his father, having their cries and groans always in his ears, and before he eat or drink or do his errand to his father, and entreat him, if ever he loved him, that he would send all the force of his kingdom to raise the siege, rather than any of his dear relations should perish. Saying this is, this is Christ in intercession. He's the prince that has gone to his father, the king, and says, my, you know, my, my people are under siege, and that under the reign of your sovereignty, father, Care for them, protect them, bring them safely home. That's what Christ is busy doing now in heaven. The atonement once having been presented for all time, having secured an eternal redemption, nevertheless, he appears in the presence of God for us and ever lives to make intercession so that all of the effectual purchases of his redemption be applied in due time to everyone for whom he's purchased them. Now, I think it's only right for me to say that I'm two minutes to overtime and I've got a little bit more to go. No one will think any of you uncouth if you get up and go at three o'clock. Don't worry about it, but I'm going to go until they kick me out. All right. (laughs) The security of the believer, which is very tied to that intercession. Man, these are two great little, little quotes from Flavel. They're 200 or 150 pages apart, but they're just great. He says, the enemy under his feet shall not destroy the children in his arms. What a picture. Who's the enemy that would destroy the children? Oh, the one under his feet. The one whose neck is under his feet. I love that. Flavel says, doubt it not, but he who receives enemies into his bosom. In other words, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. 
The one who receives enemies into his bosom will much more receive and embrace children, though offending ones. Believer, you have no reason to stay far off from Christ, even when you sin against him, even when you do it the same way that you've done it for 30 years and have prayed against and can't seem to master He's never, he's never telling you to go do penance. He's never telling you to go feel bad about it for a little while. You're always a prayer away because he will receive and embrace children even though they are offending ones. That's the blessing of what we just heard in the previous hour, right? The, the, the adoption, he's our father. And so he receives his children. And then, man, in this, in, in communion with God, Owen, he's... he's taking the, the voice of Christ and he's speaking to a sinner who is, um, you know, sort of battling with assurance because of his sin, right? He's, he doesn't have assurance because he sinned it away. And, and he's, he pictures Christ's interaction with, with the, the one who's doubting because of his wickedness. And he says, Jesus says, come with your burdens. Come, you poor soul, with, the guilt of, with your guilt of sin. And the sinner replies, why? What to do? And Christ says, why, this is mine. This agreement I made with my father that I should come and take your sins and bear them away. They were my lot. Give me your burden. Give me all your sins. You don't know what to do with him. I know how to dispose of them well enough so that God will be glorified and your soul delivered. What are you doing holding on to that? That's mine. I own that. I paid for that. When he might as well dart flames from his eyes and send us to hell that moment. When, when you know, didn't you see all that I suffered? Didn't you see what I had to do joining humanity into unity with, with deity? What, 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 that's the kind of response I'm giving, right? You know, I just went through all this, and here you are again. And, and, he, and, he, and it's the, the, the disposition of Christ is the exact opposite. It's not a disposition to reprove. It's a disposition to say, what are you doing hanging on to your sins? You give them to me. And then Owen, in a, a different spot, says to help the, assur- the, the assurance of a struggling believer. He says, you who have but a weak faith, have a strong Christ. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the strength of the object of your faith. That's where your security and the foundation of your assurance lies. All right, number 10, grace makes duty a delight. Watson says that just straight out. Love makes duty a pleasure. Love it. Just to the point. Sibs says, when we feel ourselves cold in affection and duty, the best way is to warm ourselves at this fire of his love and mercy in giving himself for us. Christ rules us by a spirit of love from a sense of his love, whereby his commandments are easy to us. Okay, after an hour of reflection on sin and grace, if Christ were to show up and say, all right, listen, I need you to climb Mount Everest for me. You good with that? What do you think? What are you saying right now? Let's go, right? The commandments are, are easy to us for the, from the one that we love this way and that loves us this way. This is what the Puritans do for us. They keep us in a frame. If we'll only go and get up, put our minds on such things, to be ready to obey as soon as the master calls. And then, uh, man, 
Well, before I read this Newton one, I'm going to read you William Cooper. Um, remember, grace makes duty a delight. William Cooper says, uh, writes in this hymn, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. And Newton says basically the same thing. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. You know how great grace is? Grace makes you want to do what you must do, what you ought to do. Grace makes your duty a delight. As if, as if God should say, Sit down and eat ice cream for the rest of your life, you know? I mean, like, glut yourself on the bounties of the cookies on the patio and don't worry about insulin and carb- carbs and all that stuff, <laughs> right? That, I, you got it. That's not super difficult for me to go and obey, right? No, but see, what, why? Because I love those things, right? There's some sort of natural inclination of my, of my, you know, physical appetites towards those. Well, if my spiritual appetites are tuned to love him then what I must do becomes what I love to do. And no more of this, you know, like Malachi, I just preached on Malachi 1, my, how tiresome it is. No, no, the commandments of God are not burdensome, First or First John 5, 3. Grace makes not just duty a delight, but grace is so great that it makes suffering a delight. Flavel says, disgrace, uh, disgrace itself is honorable when it's in for the Lord of glory, and surely there is, as one puts it, a little paradise, a young heaven in sufferings for Christ. And Flavel says another spot, let Christ but manifest himself and dart the beams of his light into believers' souls. It will make them kiss the stakes, sing in the flames, and shout in the pangs of death as men that divide the spoil. May Christ strengthen us to see his beauty that we would suffer well because that suffering is coming more than it's ever proposed to to us anyway and now rutherford says if your lord calls you to suffering do not be dismayed for he will provide a deeper portion of christ in your suffering the softest pillow will be placed under your head though you must set your bare feet among thorns do not be afraid at suffering for christ for he has a sweet peace for a sufferer. God has called you to Christ's side. And if the wind is now in his face, you can't expect to rest on the sheltered side of the hill. You cannot, you cannot be above your master who received many an innocent stroke. The greatest temptation out of hell is to live without trials. But a pool of standing water will turn stagnant. Faith grows more with the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. You cannot sneak quietly into heaven without adversity, without a cross. Sorry, I read the same thing. Crosses form us into his image. They cut away the pieces of our corruption. And so Rutherford says, Lord, cut, carve, wound. Lord, do anything to perfect your image in us and make us fit for glory. And then he says this, oh, what I owe to the file, hammer, and furnace. Why should I be surprised at the plow that makes such deep furrows in my soul? Whatever direction the wind blows, it will blow us to the Lord. His hand will direct us safely to the heavenly shore to find the weight of eternal glory. And as we look back to our pains and suffering, we shall see that suffering 
is not worthy to be compared to our first night's welcome home in heaven. One day home, one night home, and it'll make sense and, sh- and, and prove to be worth it 10,000 times over. So Rutherford says, if we could smell of heaven in our country above, and our, our crosses would not bite us. And so lay all your loads by faith on Christ. Ease yourself, let him bear all. He can, he does, and he will. Whether God comes with a rod or a crown, he comes with himself. Have courage. I am your salvation. Welcome. Welcome, Jesus. And grace even makes death a delight. Of course it does. Because the bitterness of death was all squeezed into Christ's cup. He was made to drink up the very dregs of it so that our death might be the sweeter to us. Alas, there is now nothing left in death that is frightful or troublesome beside the pain of dissolution, that natural evil of it. It was the story of one of the martyrs that being observed to be exceeding jocund and merry when he came to the stake, one asked him what was the reason his heart was so light when death, and that in such a terrible form too, was before him. Oh, said he, my heart is so light at my death because Christ's was so heavy at his death. All of the bitterness of death was squeezed into Christ's cup. He drank it down to its dregs. I didn't put it in here, but Flavel also says, death is a dragon, the grave its den, a place of dread and terror, but Christ goes into its den, there grapples with it, and forever overcomes it, disarms it of all its terror, and not only makes it cease to be inimical, but to become exceeding beneficial to the saints, a bed of rest and a perfumed bed. They do but go into Christ's bed where he lay before them. Flavel in another place calls death the Christian's good physician, the one that heals us of all the infirmities that we have now. Spurgeon says deathbeds are stony things without Christ. Flavel says a grave with Christ is a comfortable place. And then the glory of heaven. And we could have read pages of Edwards, you know, but I'll just give you one. His... uh, David Brainerd's funeral sermon, because it's not often referenced. Heaven is a world of love. You, you would have referenced that. You know, the whole, the, you know, God is the highest good of the creature, you know, more pleasant than any accommodations here. You would have heard those quotes before. I don't know if you've heard, you would have heard of, of this one. He says, oh, how infinitely great will the privilege and happiness of such be, who at that time shall go to be with Christ in his glory. It is the privilege of being with Christ in heaven, where he sits on the right hand of God, in the glory of the King and God of the angels and of the whole universe, shining forth as the great light, the bright sun of that world of glory, there to dwell in the full, constant, and everlasting view of his beauty and brightness, there most freely and intimately to converse with him and fully to enjoy his love as his friends and spouse, there to have fellowship with him in the infinite pleasure and joy he has in the enjoyment of his Father, there to sit with him on his throne and reign with him in the possession of all things and partake with him in the joy and glory of his victory over his enemies and the advancement of his in the world and to join with him in joyful songs of praise to his father and their father, to his God and their God forever and ever. And then here's Brooks and this last line, 
memorize it. He says, remember this, that your life is short, your duties many, your assistance great, and your reward sure. Therefore, faint not, hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing, and heaven shall make amends for all. I can't, I can't tell you what a ministry it's been to my own heart to, to ask myself, do you believe heaven is real and that the reward is greater than anything you might sin in order to lay hold of? That you might worry yourself and become anxious about and really praying that into your soul, heaven shall make amends for all. One night's home. And our crosses wouldn't bite us here. That, I mean, I think that that's a, a thought ripe for, for fruitfulness in your own heart. And so you come to the end of it. And what do you say? You say, God, be gracious. May I keep what I've heard close to my mind and consciousness. May I live in this frame rather than the one that I so often live in. And, and, and please give, give the appropriate increase on, you know, commensurate with that level of sowing of seed. Pray with me that, that he would do that. Father, we, we just cast yourself, uh, cast ourselves rather upon your mercy and ask that you would seal these words to our heart. These are not inspired of the Holy Spirit, but they are laced with the Holy Spirit and, and, and are so properly derivative of what the Spirit did inspire that they bring that very word, your word, to our hearts in such a way that little else does. That's for this reason we love these men, not to idolize them, not by a long shot, but because, because they point to you and your son in such a way that melts the heart. There, there's not one of us in here who's alive in Christ today, who in this moment, if presented with the temptation of sin, wouldn't refuse it, though it'd be promised with all the money and satisfaction and power, whatever in the world. May it be, Father, that we daily bring our minds into submission to the truth, that we daily affect our consciences with this truth that we might live in such a frame more and more as we come closer and closer to our heavenly home. May it be that we be disgusted with sin. Help us to see it as it is and not how Satan paints it. Help us to see it as we will have to see it before long if it has its will. Help us to see the greatness of your grace and the loveliness of Christ who we hide ourselves from when we give, out, give ourselves to sin. And may the delightfulness of his own beauty be compelling. Compelling enough to, to, to force us, to compel us to forsake sin and press hard after you. We love you more than our own words can say. And thank you for the words of the Puritans that help us express it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.